0: Hello, and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIT founders Frank van Driest and Mark de Swann-Arens will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, everyone.
1: Good afternoon. In Europe, good evening. In Asia, Australia, good night. Uh, We've got people from all over the world, which is very exciting and very understandable, given the fact that we have uh, such an eminent leader joining us today. Alan, it's fantastic to see you. Let me say a big welcome. I'll introduce you in a minute. But first, where are you
0: and how are you? Uh, Thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. Um, I'd like to also share my good mornings, good afternoons, and good evenings. Don't forget Africa. get anyone in Africa. Good afternoon as well. Um, I'm you currently do. at our home here in Edinburgh. Very much looking forward to engaging in a in a chat. And I'm feeling great. Thanks, Mark. Always good on a Friday afternoon, to be honest.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's very much true. Alan Jope, the global CEO of Unilever, it requires very little introduction. But still, I, I I do want to say a little bit about what I know about you and what the reason was that I asked you to join this uh, IRG Humanizing Growth Series. Alan is a lifelong Unilever, has literally been all over the world, uh, first in marketing roles and then very quickly in business roles, uh, leading categories and regional businesses. I remember like yesterday that we were talking and you were the head of China and we were there for the World Fair and launching our book and you were actually very kindly supported that launch. We had 50 CMOs touring the World Fair, but um, Alan also had the incredible challenge of stepping into the shoes of a huge leader right ahead of him, Paul Paulman, who we've had in the Humanizing Growth series. And Paul Paulman uh, did something which many consider to be total industry leadership, uh, built on the roots of the company, and we'll get to that, but taking Unilever a leap forward ahead of almost everyone in the industry in showing how sustainability and multi-stakeholder growth could go totally hand-in-hand with business growth. And um, as the IRG is all about helping leaders move from shareholder primacy to multi-stakeholder growth, uh, that is wonderful to actually delve into. But Alan has decided to take that a whole level further. So in this call today, we'll talk about uh, him first, uh, but then uh, Unilever, what they've learned, COVID, of course, uh, the role of marketing. And, uh, and as these things go, lots of things that you will probably be suggesting in the Q&A. So, Alan, um, first, tell me, how are you? How has this crazy period been?
0: You know, the truth is, Mark, I'm a little bit nervous because I feel that we're in a conversation here with Lots of people who I know, including some quite close friends. I know allegedly uh, Tamara's on the call and uh, Victor and others. Some of our best, most respected competitors are listening in. And I don't want to let you down. So I hope I can find something interesting to say. But I, I do uh, come at it full of energy. I must say that coronavirus, of course, is a, a, a tragedy. It's mostly bad news. Um, but there's been a few positives, uh, one of which has been I've spent more time with my wife and family than I have for years. Uh, we have three kids and I've seen a lot of Amy and Angus. Unfortunately, our middle boy, Cameron, he's stuck out in Western Canada, uh, where he's just finished the sixth year of his four year degree um, and uh, finally is going to graduate, get him off the payroll at <laughs> But I'm in, uh, I'm in good form. And I think the th- you know, maybe one reflection is we've probably all learned how much time we wasted flying around the world, attending meetings and, and you're know, doing very unproductive use of time. And one positive from COVID for me, apart from seeing more of uh, Rosie and the, and the other two kids, um, has just been the capacity unlock um, by getting rid of some of that unproductive travel time.
1: Yeah, and, and but but let me ask you the question that's close to my heart as well, because of course, everyone is indeed saying that and seeing how much time is released. On the other hand, we're seeing a lot of leaders uh, suffering from burnout because they started a sprint that turned into a marathon. Mental health, uh, self-care is becoming so important. And the physical contact, I was on the line with two colleagues uh, two days ago, and we ended with a, a minute of really miss you. you know want to be together so if you had to now project forward how much of the travel will come back because you want to see these people physically
0: so uh, i would distinguish um i miss personal travel um going visiting cool new places being energized by new experiences i miss social contact with my football team my friends enormously And I think we all recognize that company cultures are built up through the formation of social capital. And uh, there's no doubt that over the last uh, 10 months, we have eroded the social capital in organizations through a lack of physical intimacy. And I look forward very much to getting back out into the market, seeing parts of our business but in the same way as we were forced to reinvent how we work from offices, I do believe that there will be new ways of uh, connecting through travel. For example, I fully intend instead of dashing for a couple of days here, a couple of days there, I think I'll go camp in North America for a month, camp in China for a month, camp in Singapore for a month, and do short trips from there. So just realizing that the old paradigms of work don't really hold water these days. And we've all learned there's different ways of doing things. So we will rebuild the social capital, but hopefully we'll do it in uh, a modern way and not just return to uh, old ways of working. And yes, like you, I sure miss a pint with my pals.
1: We're going to talk about you, Nilever, but I, if you don't mind, I'd just like to know a little bit more and just delve a little further I mean, you've, you've had an incredible journey. You've made clear already the importance of people in your life. As prep for this conversation, I, I listened and looked at some other talks and, and it, I just keep hearing you talk about people. And I'm guessing that your purpose is, um, is there. I wanted to really, because we talk a lot about purpose. Can you talk a little bit about how clear you are on your purpose yeah. and, and when, when that happened, how it
0: happens? So like many organizations, we have tools for helping people to discover their purpose. We've put put 45,000 people through a uh, Find Your Purpose full day workshops. Um, I was a good soldier, signed up, did all the the good things, came away with uh, um, an articulation of my purpose that it took two years to realize was wrong. Um, And it was kind of, as usual, I only really have interesting thoughts typically and either the shower or lying in bed. And I think it was in the shower one time, so I realized what, what it is that motivates me. And the way I capture it is to say, is to lead the adventure. Um, so my purpose is to lead the adventure. And it, you see it in my personal life. Um, you can see it a little bit in my career. And certainly in business, uh, the routine side of business, I don't enjoy at all. But when we're out in unexplored places, that's when I uh, really... Enjoy, and then the lead bit is yes, this is a social uh, contact and, and leading people is ultimately the most rewarding part of uh, of uh, my job. But you know, independent from Unilever, my purpose would still be lead the adventure and that manifests in all kinds of ridiculous behaviours. I think motorcycles play a small role in that somewhere. We can,
1: we can talk about it that. is true. I mean, talk-
0: probably. The archetype of that uh, expressing itself is uh, three pals and I are uh, exactly halfway through um, a goal of riding adventure motorbikes from Anchorage in Alaska to Sydney in Australia. Um, We first went across the Sahara, we've been around Mongolia, we've done Southern Africa, we've done various trips, but we said, let's do an odyssey. And so we're now We've had seven two-week journeys to get us from Anchorage to Cape Town, uh, with all kinds of spills and uh, uh, things along the way. But uh, you know, if you really want to see me in my happy place, uh, out on 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 actually not the road, our little dirty little secret is we try and do as much of it off-road as possible. Um, that's that's me truly uh, in my happy place. There and uh, in the pub with the football team. Those are the two um i shouldn't say that too loud of course with my family as well
1: so I, i do want to ask a little bit more about unilever facilitating that for so many leaders because that's not something you hear very often but um just to first finish about you um when did this sort of clarity get formed in your mind and has it actually shaped decisions subsequently about the type of role you wanted to uh,
0: play? Yeah, so the the answer is about a decade ago and not really. I think it shaped the decisions that I was making before that without me realizing it. So, um, you know, I joined Unilever out of university because I needed a job. Uh, That was the primary motive uh, was uh, a paycheck. My father's brother lived in uh my uncle the only other alan Jope i've ever met uh lived in malaysia uh, running a rubber plantation with my beautiful and exotic aunt ying um, who he'd met in malaysia and they would come back to scotland when we were kids and i remember um when when after i'd done five years with unilever i said any chance of getting sent to southeast asia you know thailand or malaysia and the company was kind enough to pack my wife and i off to new york instead (laughs) <laughs> and we had a wonderful adventure there. Then we had an adventure in, Malay, in in Thailand, then into a newly acquired business in Unilever. At the time you referenced in my introduction there, which was very kind of you when I was running China, just to put that in context, the six previous Unilever leaders who had led our business in China had been sacked at the end of the assignment. It was a notorious <laughs> departure lounge so when uh, I got a phone call one night from Vindi Banga saying, how do you fancy working and uh, running Unilever's business in China? I thought, OK, I can take a hint. Um, but my wife and I said, uh, yeah, let's go for it. It'll be uh, fun. It'll be good for the kids. And so at every, literally every single move in my career, I think I've taken the kind of unexpected choice, often to crappy jobs in wonderful places and i do think that sense of of life being an adventure was shaping those choices but i was never i never articulated that until 5 or 10 years ago
1: right. now you said that unilever had facilitated this find your purpose program uh, in in another company which i won't mention i was peripherally involved with a program like that and it was stopped because I don't know what percentage, but a significant percentage of people came to the realization that they didn't want to work there anymore. And uh, so, <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about the philosophy and and, and it, you know what what is what is what is done in finding helping people find their purpose.
0: It, it is absolutely clear that if if someone goes through that program and realizes that they're not going to be able to live their purpose uh, working in Unilever then both they and the company are better off moving on and, and being set free to pursue their purpose somewhere else. We don't want Unilever to be a prison. Uh, we have not seen those wholesale departures, but what we have seen is, uh, like all big organizations, we do our annual people survey and uh, we do ask the question, to what extent are you able to lead your pur- live your purpose in your work? And people who answer top two boxes uh, on that question are remarkably higher on job satisfaction, recommending Unilever as a place to work, overall engagement, um, likelihood to stay. Um, And so where we're able to find um, that matchup between people's personal purpose and their work it unlocks enormous energy and uh, commitment. And if the consequence is that a smaller proportion go for chase their purpose somewhere else, um, so be it. That's great. That's uh, Everybody's winning.
1: Everyone's winning, yeah. That's uh, It's actually um, in the IRG program, the, the IRG 100 program, I should say, which has about 100 CMOs following a program, many of them listening in on this call. Um, we, uh, we actually, uh, we're just coming to the module, which is all about personal passion and purpose. Let's transition a little bit to Unilever. Um, you've been in the role now uh, for over a year. It's, um, it's you know, it, I, I said big shoes to fill. Uh, you can talk a little bit about that, but I, I don't think there's very little doubt that Paul Pullman made a real mark on business. You know, it's in the context of uh, BlackRock saying that companies need to state how they create value for more, more stakeholders, uh, the business round table declaration. Uh, but I think many of those things may not even have happened if people weren't able to look at Unilever and say, see, because it works if you do this. Tell me a little bit, um, w- we'll get into that, but before we um, focus on now, I just want to look back to last year. COVID has had such an impact. What, what has been yeah. the lessons learned from a Unilever perspective?
0: I think like many organizations, there's a couple of things that we've uh, learned in the last 10 months of COVID. The first is we're capable of speed and, and agility that we would never have dreamed of. We've learned we can fire up a factory in two days that would previously have taken two months. We launched a brand that you know very well, Lifebuy. We took it to 50 new countries in 100 days. And you know it, it, we we just can point out, examples of, can you imagine if you had said to some, an organization that 70,000 people would start working from home on two days notice and yeah. uh, nobody would skip a, skip a beat, that you would have to run factories where you shut them down because there's a COVID pocket, you test everybody before they come back to work, uh, you run in you know extreme PPE, no problem. I mean, it's been unbelievable, the speed and agility. And I think the other Thing is, we've realized, I think it's been an accelerator of getting rid of hierarchy. The organization feels flatter, the lines of communication are faster, everybody gets the same size box on Teams or Zoom. Uh, maybe at some point we'll come on and talk about this, but I think our, tradi- our notion of organizations as this uh, traditional uh, pyramid shaped hierarchy is doomed. History will say COVID was a big contributor. To the death of hierarchy. Uh, we've discovered that um, very much. And then from a, you know, through a business lens, every, all our normal growth patterns have been turned upside down, whether it's by category, by geography, by channel. We've had categories that have typically grown two, three, four percent, are growing 30, 40%. Anything to do with hygiene, hand hygiene, surface hygiene, scratch cooking at home. And on the other side, You know, there's not a lot of people out eating ice cream in the piazzas of Italy right now. So all of our out-of-home food consumption, our restaurant supply business, uh, that struggled a little bit from a category perspective. Geographically, there's been a consumption boom in the US and the UK and Australia, and we saw a slowdown in some traditionally fast-growing parts of the world. And then from a channel perspective, same as everyone else, you know, uh, e-commerce just absolutely exploding. So it's, you know whoa, what just happened? Huge shifts in demand patterns and also huge agility that we didn't realize we had uh, to respond to that. And it sounds
1: like the, uh, the, 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 the portfolio has really um, helped here because I hear things that clearly went down a lot and things that sound like they exploded up.
0: Well, look, um, there are a lot of people celebrating uh, being geniuses, and there are a lot of people being ridiculed as being not you know, smart at the moment, when in fact luck has a great role. You know if you happen to be r- running an airline or a hotel um, over the last uh, year, you know good luck. Um, it's, it's a shame what's, what's happened. And mm-hmm. similarly, there are naturally advantaged uh, segments where people are seeing, you know, uh, I guess the, the zoom team couldn't believe what hap- just happened to their business. Uh, you know, we happen to be a bit naturally hedged, but, you know, look at, at great companies. I think some might even be on the line right now, like rekabankies are but perfectly positioned for to take advantage of the, the hygiene and health uh, boom that, that's happened. So a lot of it is luck. We happen to be a little bit hedged, but that's something we've discovered. Uh, it's no great grand design. Well, um, um,
1: let's talk about,
0: what do you think the last year has
1: brought in terms of permanent changes in the expectations of consumers? You said yeah. in other places, we are organized around the consumer. but I, I'd love you to just run through all Cs that we call you know the total um, as you always talk about the multi-stakeholder mix, uh, colleagues, customers, the communities, and capital markets. Can you run through what you think has changed in yeah. their expectations of your company?
0: Let me start with the consumer, where I won't labor the point because everyone on the call will recognize all these patterns, but e-everything, e-browsing, e-shopping, e-media consumption, e-payments, uh, You know the, the digital lifestyle has just exploded. Anything to do with health and well-being, uh, with hygiene as an adjunct to that, uh, is, is growing very quickly. Of course, we're seeing, this is interesting, when we are seeing a rise in conscious consumption. So pick your study, whether it's, you know, Kantar study, WPP study, everyone's done a study, and they all show that people are way more concerned now than a year ago about the social and environmental impact of their consumption choices. Um, and it is interesting also to look at that through a general generational lens, and it's young people who are driving the, the change towards cons- conscious consumption. Young people, also known as consumers of the future, of course, I think society has a greater awareness now of inequality. Uh, you know, nurses, delivery people, transport workers, supermarket clerks um, are the, in my mind, have been the heroes of the last uh, of the last year. I think some of these are significant changes that will uh, stick around from a consumer perspective others are more transient. So the shutdown of restaurants, that'll come back. Uh, there, are, there are other, uh, and by the way, you can look at China in 2010, and the consumer behavior changes that happened through um, uh, swine flu back then are yeah. almost identically being replicated around the world 10 years later in response to coronavirus. And that's a good way of determining, OK, what's going to be permanent and what's just uh, transitory. I think um, in terms of the other stakeholders, and I'll talk a bit about, a bit more about them in a second, um, th- we are definitely uh, seeing a, a magnifying glass on corporate conduct. The latest hot topic is vaccines. Are big companies going to try and leverage their clout to jump the queue on mm-hmm. vaccines? Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can get into that if you like. Um, and certainly, um, two years ago, I started in this role in ESG, Uh, In a meeting with an investor, typically ESG would be represented by an individual, a more junior member of the team in the meeting, um, who would be then given a couple of questions after the serious business had been uh, discussed. That is absolutely no longer the case. Um, Every single investor we meet with, in fact, I spend more time talking with investors about sustainability issues. Than uh, top line, bottom line, uh, and cash, um, it has become completely mainstream and has been particularly accelerated over the last ten months for whatever reasons.
1: Yeah. Now, what about colleagues? You, you already referred a little bit to the uh, changing uh, hierarchy. I, I heard you say somewhere else that you do a weekly call now. Just talk about how that's changed and what yeah. the expectations of colleagues are.
0: Well. Um, I think we've always had a latent belief that if we take care of Unilever's people, Unilever's people will take care of the business, um, but now it's an express belief. So um, our version of, your, of the four C's is really a seven-stakeholder model where we, we believe that um, our responsibility is to uh, the Unilever team, first and foremost, our employees, then consumers, customers, business partners, suppliers, agencies, etc., communities, the planet, and the shareholder in that order. And so we unapologetically say our highest priority in our multi-stakeholder model is to our own employees. Uh, again, driven by the bu- the business case, that when we take good care of our people, uh, they will take care of the business. And so, You know, we were very quick um, in the first week, actually, uh, of COVID. We made a commitment that uh, uh, jobs and incomes would be secure um, for what at the time felt like the likely duration of three months. Nobody would lose their job, including our uh, contractors on site. So the the cafeteria workers, the guards, the cleaners who don't work for Unilever, but they're a part of our team. We said all of them will uh, we will look after all of those people. Um, and, uh, you know, subsequently we have done, I think like everyone has, we've taken very good care of our people. One particular thing we invented on the spot was this idea of a global town hall. So every Tuesday at lunchtime, I'll hop on for an hour and we typically get between seven and 14,000 people join in. It will be you, it's me plus one, um, usually one of the exec, but not necessarily. We've had our doctor, company doctor, join me one time for obvious reasons. Uh, I'll do five, 10 minutes of blah, blah, just what's going on in the business, uh, top of mind, very immediate, uh, quite extemporaneous. Then the guest will talk about their area of expertise. Um, and for the next 40 minutes, it's pigeonhole, and we'll get typically four or 500 questions. The most upvoted questions will have. Five or six hundred votes to be upvoted, and it's yeah. fully transparent to everybody. If you're, if we're wow. ducking the most upvoted question, everyone can see yeah. that, yeah. and it has forced a degree of, you know, that's another example. It feels the organisation feels very flat when you're in that mode, and I absolutely love it, as you can tell from my tone of voice.
1: Now, what about the brands? You've got such a portfolio, and some of them, of course, are world famous for having invented purpose almost, and and others uh, have been attacked in the past for not being purposeful enough. Can you give me a bit of a lay of the land of what COVID taught you about the different brands and the importance of their purpose in terms of how they reacted and how it was received?
0: All COVID did was amplify signals that we were already seeing. You know as well as I do as a marketer that not all peas are equal. And proposition, to my mind, is by far the most important um, of the elements of the marketing mix, because all other decisions are made off of that. And purpose is just an evolved version of clarity on your brand's proposition. So whether it's Dove talking about girls' self-esteem or Lifebuoy saving the lives of kids under the age of five. Um, our domestos fighting for decent sanitation for all. Hellman's helping to fight food waste. Canor trying to reinvent the food system to a more sustainable food system. When those brands, those were all decisions made before COVID. But what it meant was that the the signposts were a little bit clearer for those brands. And for about five years now, we've tried to objectively measure which of our brands are clearly purposeful, sustainability-driven brands. And roughly speaking, they make up about half the portfolio. And what we're seeing is an acceleration of the growth difference between those brands and the rest of the portfolio. Year by year, that number gets bigger. It was true last year as well that the, the our purposeful brands uh, the, the delta between their growth rate and the growth rate of the best, rest of the portfolio accelerated further. And I I I think it's more just about clarity of direction than necessarily anything to do with COVID. But when things are happening very, very, very quickly, when, when what you're yeah. trying to do, sure helps. Yeah, yeah. I think
1: uh, one of our participants um, mentioned that they... They had a purpose. It was something on a piece of paper by the elevators. But when COVID struck, everyone was paralyzed because they didn't know whether they were allowed to do what they wanted to do. And talk, talk to me about, um, to us, if you would, about some of the, the things that brands did that you're most proud of. And it'd be beautiful if there were also some examples which we can learn from where you go, you know, learn it from me, don't do it yourself.
0: Well, The overarching thing, Mark, is that what you do is much more important than what you say. I'm not sure I should be sharing this quite so forcefully in this forum, but uh, we think the secret sauce that many marketers miss is to mistake uh, brand say for brand do. Now, what do I mean by that? The only reason why domestics can campaign on toilets is because we put 18 million toilets into homes uh, the only reason why uh, Lifebuoy can legitimately campaign on fighting uh, the death of kids under the age of five through proper ha- uh, hygiene is because we taught a billion people how to wash their hands. The only reason why Dove can um, uh, talk with authority about girls' self-esteem is because we've now taught 50 million girls in, in one-to-one teaching about unrealistic beauty uh, stereotypes. All of those examples, by the way, came true during COVID. So. Dove took a position on uh, Black Lives Matter that felt very natural um, because of the campaigning for diverse views of beauty that Dove had done for years. Uh, Lifebuoy sprung into action with actually public service uh, advertising, saying use any soap and we named our competitors brands. And of course, uh, you know, it, was done with, it was done with integrity, but it sure looked good on the brand. And you know our food contributions, uh, particularly in North America, we really went out of our way to try and provide meals for frontline healthcare workers using some of our uh, more purposeful food brands. And again, that was very, very well appreciated. Uh, where we got it wrong um, is where um, a, brand, a brand tries to jump on a bandwagon. Let me give an, a, an example. One of our most purposeful brands, one of our most campaigning brands is Ben & Jerry's. Um, Ben & Jerry's has fought for years on climate change, LGBTQI rights, racial justice. And so when they speak up about that, um, it gets people's attention and um, it's seen as very authentic. Now. What we forget is that over the last twelve months, the, the world has been facing an enormous immigration crisis as well, including in Europe. And Ben and Jerry's uh, <clears throat> took a hot shot by name at one of the British cabinet members, um, happened to be Priti Patel, and it provoked quite a backlash. And it did it, it provoked a backlash for two reasons. Number one, immigration, unfortunately, is becoming a bigger and bigger issue in the world as countries retreat to nationalism, and there's a rise of xenophobia. It's disgraceful, but it's true. Yeah. Um, but secondly, people didn't realize that Ben and Jerry's have been doing work on immigration for years, and so it was seen as opportunistic and was mm-hmm. res- provoked a response of, why the hell's an ice cream speaking out about immigration? We hadn't built over time the license to talk about that issue on that brand, and came in into a space where we weren't seen as having the right to operate. So I guess the the learning on purpose is it is the ultimate signpost on what a brand should do. You build your credibility by what you do, not what you say. It takes years to build your purpose. And uh, beware getting the the talk ahead of the walk. So interesting. You know, I
1: actually had a personal experience about a year ago I was at a gathering and there was um, one of these influencers. Um, she was 25 and she, uh, they actually announced at the dinner, they celebrated that that day she was part of a lingerie company announcing the launch of a whole uh, plus size range. And, uh, and she was applauded and she happened to be sitting next to me. And uh, I asked her what she thought of brands playing a role. Um, and I mentioned Dove. And her first reaction was one of, uh, no, I hate it when brands jump on the bandwagon, places where they shouldn't be. And um, I couldn't resist. So I pulled up on the side, I pulled up some of the YouTube work from Dove from 20 years ago or 18 years ago with all the, um, the team members and, and, and consumers in underwear and said, um, what do you think of this? And she said, oh, my God, it's fantastic. She said, it's almost 20 years old. That's the brand that you just thought jumped on the
0: bandwagon. By the way, Mark, isn't this one of the most important things for all of us as marketers to uh, remember? It takes decades of consistency to establish a thought in people's minds, and we get bored of our own messages. We de so our own messages far, far, far too soon and far too often. And you know the reason why you and I probably associate Volvo with safety, is because Volvo didn't talk about anything other than safety for 40 years. Those are the time frames on which propositions are established for most brands. Of course, there are exceptions, but most brands, it takes years, decades of consistency. Um, And yes, the campaign for real beauty is 15, 16 years old uh, this year. Incredible. Just starting
1: to break through. So I want to just jump on something uh, that you said when you were talking about uh lessons learned from the last year. Do, do you think that as uh, you know, as we think about all the touch points and all the media that brands use, is political donations and actual political activism, do you think that that's, given everything that's happened, and especially in the last few weeks, is that now fair game? Is that where brands may even need to play?
0: I don't have any uh, monopoly on what brands should and shouldn't do, but I can tell you what what I feel very strongly about for Unilever is as companies and brands move to address the big issues in society, and frankly, there are really two overarching ones, which is climate change and inequality. Most issues are derivative of either climate change or inequality. As brands and companies help tackle those scourges, inevitably, we get into political issues. Climate change is a political issue. Equality is a political issue, Uh, racial justice is a political issue, and so it's naive of brand leaders and business leaders to think that you can steer clear of political issues. The line that we draw in Unilever is uh, there is a difference between political issues and party politics, and I think um, there are precious few brands and companies that should be engaging on party politics if you want to be a long-term durable uh, business. Right. Um, and we, I think politics should be left to the politicians, political issues, um, business and brands must take a view on. Right. So I'll give you an example. So yeah. what, two yeah. examples, what happened on Capitol Hill last week, two of yeah. our brands have got embroiled in. One rather predictable, uh, which is Ben and Jerry's, of course, uh, calling out the, I guess, still current president, demanding an orderly transition of power, etc. So Ben and Jerry's, they've been at that for years. Everyone knows it's Ben, it's Jerry. They're doing their thing. The other one was, can you believe it? Our deodorant brand, Axe, someone left behind a can of Axe. In the capital, some of the and it was picked up by the media. And you know, in amongst all this debris was this can of axe. Actually, the, the picture, the, the caption of the picture was, Look, a lonely can of axe left behind by the demonstrators. And uh, we immediately tweeted out, uh, We'd rather be lonely than with that mob. Mm-hmm. Axe calls for an orderly transition of power, blah, blah, blah. Now, I was obviously not involved, in that happened in the moment, and um, it generated enormous positive sentiment online and quite significant coverage, and I think the reason why it was okay was we didn't originate it. It was very clear that we were responding to something Mm -hmm. that had happened, but if Axe had suddenly jumped in proactively and started getting involved Mm -hmm. in the issue, we would have deserved to be pilloried for it. Um and so yeah, brands can't avoid political issues, but I'd counsel to stay away from party politics.
1: I want to ask one more question about brands before we transition uh, for the latter part um, to talk about the the transition from shareholder primacy yeah. to multi-stakeholder. And the brand question is, you, you are uh, recognized and celebrated as a company for all your work in transitioning to far more sustainable business practices. Or your information around that and so forth, or your commitments to targets that seem impossible to reach for others, how do you link that back to those individual brands? Because those are corporate objectives, corporate promises, how, do you, how does that work?
0: Yeah, um, I think uh, you've quite rightly called out the incredible job that uh, my predecessor Paul did, putting Unilever's name on the map uh, for sustainability. Um, one of the next phases that um, he and I were working towards and which I want to lead for is to make sure that all that work, all that effort um, shows up in our brands more than it has in the past. So whether, if you look at the big commitments that we made last year uh, and some that we will be making in the imminent future, um, whether it's on plastic, on climate and nature, on cleaner cleaning systems, on uh, f- the future of foods, 100% of those commitments are being driven by our brands. And uh, of course, why well, actually, here's the specific mechanism is yeah. all brands need to have a proposition and a purpose. We believe that they need to have a product and packaging philosophy as well. And so, um, Hellman's purpose will be around fighting against food waste, but they need to have a point of view on responsible and sustainable sourcing of the oils that go in the product and the use of recycled materials in their packaging. Um, And as a, as a sort of thought template, that idea of having a philosophy for your product and packaging that is future facing and highly sustainable. And that doesn't take away from the core proposition of the brand. That's been a very big unlock for us um, uh, in getting some of our work on sustainability deeply embedded and driven by our divisions and our brand. In our three divisions, um, our beauty and personal care division, their mission is people and planet positive beauty. Our foods division is uh, is called Future Foods, which is a more sustainable and plant-based food system. And our, our home care business is running a platform called clean futures, which is we will replace 100% of the chemicals in our cleaning business that are sourced from fossil fuels Mm. with carbon that comes from renewable or recycled sources. Blue carbon from oceans, green carbon from nature, purple carbon from the air, gray carbon from recycled sources. So Each division is absolutely crystal clear on their Mm. contribution to sustainability as increasingly as every brand and that's a big shift that we're making right but there's one
1: clarification that i i would like um with purpose i can see how every brand has its specific purpose with sustainability are you basically saying um look we've made these commitments at a corporate level and therefore it becomes a hygiene factor Hellman's, you need to reduce waste in the following percentages? Or are you saying, Hellman's, what is your view on
0: waste? Uh, I think we'll come on to this. Why is Unilever pushing so hard on sustainable business? Why are we so determined to tackle the environmental and social issues in the world with our brands and our business? The answer is because there's an absolutely rock-solid business case. First, brands which tackle societal and environmental issues are outgrowing other brands. It is a primarily a growth case. Secondly, we've taken about a billion euros of cost out of Unilever through sustainable sourcing. Now, off it's a very interesting curve. Very often there's an initial on-cost, yeah. and then it then it becomes cheaper. So there is a leap of faith when you say, We're gonna use recycled um, uh, plastic. We're gonna move to sustainable palm oil. We're gonna move to a rainforest certified tea. There's an initial on cost, but over time it goes away. Same as we said, we're gonna run 100% of the electricity used in Unilever worldwide is from renewable sources. When we made that commitment, it was at a premium. Now it's a cost saving. So it drives growth, it's a cost saving. The third is it reduces risk. You know, when we stubbed our toe on Black Lives Matter and we did it on a couple of brands, we got it wrong. Um, Our reputation was such that allies came to our aid uh, to help us out. Similarly, there is no healthy Unilever on an unhealthy planet. This is not a future thing. Our sales in November were lower than they would have otherwise been because of extraordinary typhoons in Southeast Asia and the Philippines every month. Climate change reduces our sales somewhere, whether it's fires in Australia or on the West Coast or typhoons in India, yes, it's uh, it's a here and now thing. So it's a growth initiative, it's a cost initiative, it's a risk initiative, but what's the most important? It's a magnet for the best. Uh, Young people want to come and work for companies that are conducting themselves to high social and environmental standards, end of. A few years ago, we we run graduate recruitment programs in 54 countries around the world. Um, Mm -hmm. A few years ago, we were the employer of choice in our sector uh, for people leaving the colleges in 17 of 54 countries. Last year it was 52 of 54 countries where we topped our, our sector for young people joining business. Well, that's gotta be a competitive advantage. So none of this, none of this is driven by altruism our moral high ground. This is driven by hard business case. And our our brands are starting to get
1: that. I mean, you've opened one of the two last topics I wanted to talk about or ask you about, which is the journey from shareholder primacy to uh, multi-stakeholder. You have the advantage of having stepped in now, um, being able to evaluate what Paul Pullman has done and put that in the context of the, the, the history. There's a lot of people listening in. They probably wouldn't join the Institute for Real Growth, which is all about driving more humanized growth, um, if they didn't have an, an interest a passion to want to do that. But they're trying to convince their CEO, their CFO. On the journey, as you now see it, what are the most important things that maintain momentum, build momentum, and maintain
0: momentum? Well, honestly, you might as well not start unless you have a belief system that sustainable business, purposeful business, multi-stakeholder business is better business. So if you think that there's a trade, so when I, as soon as I get the question, how do you manage the trade-off between sustainability and financial performance? Honestly, I kind of lose the will to live and don't really want to engage in that conversation. There is no trade-off. We are absolutely convinced that we will deliver better financial outcomes through a multi-stakeholder responsible model. And that that belief system sits at the heart of it. And I guess it does begin at the top of the organization. So uh, it began with William Lever back in 1870. He defined the mission of the firm of Lever Brothers as to make cleanliness commonplace and lessen the load for women. So he was an early public health advocate and at worst, he was a stereotyper that women did most of the household chores. But I choose to believe that he um, was an early feminist, and you know that that mantle has been carried forward. Paul really amplified it, and I intend to take it really more into our brands. But it's a belief system. Then around that, you need to build the organizational systems. You need to make sure that um, it's central to your strategy. So we used to have something called the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, the USLP. Um, we don't any more have a separate sustainability strategy and business strategy. They are fully integrated. Yeah. Yeah. You need to resource it. We put money against some super expensive and high quality talent to build up our know how through a sustainability uh, team. And then you need to reward for it. A quarter of my reward has got nothing to do with top line or bottom line. It comes from our performance on our sustainability journey. Um, so you need to put those. You need to have a belief system. That responsible multi-stakeholder business is better business, and then you need to build build, build the systems around that of strategy, resource, reward, etc.
1: Can I just ask you one probe around that? Because just like when we talk about uh, the role of marketing, and we'll get to that, and you know, you're a marketing-originated company. It's very difficult for you to imagine Unilever is now in the situation where people. Expect this and know to expect this. Paul Pullman, in his book at least, uh, talked about getting rid of investors early on in this project. He said, investors that I just don't want to have in my company. And he was able to do that. Probably most people listening to this call face a world where actually the business case has not fully been embraced. And I know you advise, you sit to sustainability councils and so. What would you say is the biggest unlock if that's challenge number one? You're a CMO. There's lots of interest covid has definitely opened up people's eyes that there is something needs to change how do then lock in that it's not just a nice thing or the right thing to do but it's a business case what's impressed you most who's done that well
0: so i think um, uh, first of all if you make the assumption that ceos generally are fairly rationally driven um, I think it is the, uh, the, there is no point in a CMO championing the case of sustainability um, unless the top team, including the CEO, buys into it. And that requires constructing the business case. You have to build the business case. Now, it can be a qualitative business case, but there has to be a theory of change, a method of growth um, that, uh, that, that is believed by the top team. Secondly, there is a gigantic body of evidence that the value creation of companies does not come from margin improvement. It comes from growth. Um, the R squared on growth, Clayton Christensen just got a new uh, book out, and it proves, frankly, unequivocally that if you want your, the value of your company to be re-rated, start growing, and don't worry too much about margin. Um, and we've certainly seen that in our sector growth is infinite, margin is not. And so you have to ultimately link uh, multi-stakeholder business, sustainable business uh, to growth. And then uh, as a CMO, you better upskill your marketers on how to integrate um, purpose and sustainability into brand propositions. Anyway, if you think it's, well, it's easy for Unilever to do that, take a look at BP. So take a look at what Bernard Looney has done. He has stuck his neck out that BP will transition from a fossil fuel extractive company to an integrated energy company uh, with a disproportionate investment in renewables. Uh, Now, will it work? I have no idea, but he certainly um, put down a marker on what sort of company he wants BP to be. And I would guess of the big energy companies, I hope BP turns out to be uh, one of the winners um, but it takes that level of uh, of of belief and commitment if you really want to pivot your business towards and i 'm using these terms interchangeably multi stakeholder sustainable responsible ultimately it has to be against a business case and not a moral imperative
1: all right, all right. well we're, we're we're nearing the last few minutes so um i um I, I wanted to ask one question very specific to marketing. You already yeah. alluded just now a little bit to it, but many of the people listening in are marketers. You used to be a marketer, and so uh, in, in you you have both perspectives. If you're if you're talking about the role of marketing and the role that marketing can play as a business partner, not a functional leader, what are some of the most important th- changes that you see when you appointed your li- last, your current CMO? You said you were yeah. looking for a CMO plus plus, just. Just yeah, what you're thinking is around the, the role you need a marketer to play in
0: your team. Sure. Uh, well, I think, you know, frankly, Mark, over the three decades or so that we've known each other, there's a load of stuff that hasn't changed. Uh, good marketers are curious about the world around them, genuinely interested in people. I think it does require a combination of left and right brain skills, um, a, a, a ruthless focus on consumers and not the competition. Uh, so many marketers get distracted in, you know, war gaming and tit-tap with the competition. But there's a lot that's changing, and uh, the first and foremost is the complexity of the world around us. Um, marketers today have to be massive systems thinkers. Uh, the, you know, the shift. I think there's four or five big things happening in the world that marketers need to be on. The economic power shift east and south. Let's not kid ourselves. It's not gonna be about Western Europe and North America. The the East is where the action is. Uh, The bioeconomy, marketers have to understand renewable bioresources, epigenetics, microbiomes, uh, longer lifespans, it's gonna really change how people behave and think. Technology, um, AI, ML, robotics, nanotech, connected world, all of that's changing marketing. And then the future of business itself, we will not be standalone companies In a few years' time, we will be networks of value exchange. We will not be rigid hierarchies. We will be agile teams working on specific problems and then moving on. We will not be standalone R and D labs. We will be collaborative networks of invention. We will not all come to a fixed office. It will be hybrid working. Boy, these are kind of big changes in business. The marketers need to uh, business and the world. The marketers need to get their their uh, head around. And I think linking brands, whatever type of brand, to societal expectations and the expectations of young people, what I would call purpose, is going to be a core marketing skill. Otherwise, our brands will lose relevance in the world. It doesn't matter if you're a car brand, a computer brand, an oil and gas brand, or a brand of soap. You better be thinking about how you link to societal expectations and young people. Now, we have, we've made one choice, which is our CMO, our wonderful CMO, Connie, um, we've chosen to integrate our Chief Digital Transformation Officer role and our Chief Marketing Officer role. So Connie is our Chief Digital and Marketing Officer. Why? Uh, because we see those as very, very related uh, change uh, agendas. Why Connie? She's a proven business leader. She has proven she can drive change at scale. She's a global citizen, spent many years living in Asia. She has consistently reinvented herself, shown the, the uh, plasticity, the learning plasticity that we need. And it helps that she's an absolute role model in how she conducts herself with her values, her integrity. Um, and, and so, but I don't think there's one size fits all. There'll be lots of different types of CMO.
1: I don't know. I haven't had time to look at the chat and I don't know if she's listening in. But if she isn't, she'll probably hear about it pretty damn quick. That was really nice to hear about somebody that I also rate incredibly high. Alan, we've reached our last minute. And um, I want to just say a a huge thank you first to you for not just willing to sort of lift the veil and talk about the things that you seem to be important, but also the things where, you know, people need to watch out but also um, just as a marketer and and business leader uh, that knows this needs to happen and needs a big player to pave the way. And Unilever just consistently does that. And I've been looking at the, the, the messages that are coming up and there were a few specific questions that I couldn't cover. There were a few that I could, but the overall theme of the messages were, thank you for showing that leadership. And that's to you and that's to the company that you represent. But let me end again, on behalf of everyone, Alan, a huge thank you and uh, have a fantastic weekend.
0: My my pleasure, thanks very much. Same to you, Mark, and good luck to everybody out there. Please stay safe, this thing is no joke.